Welcome back to our original programming style for what? Chelsea sent me the episode, the uh, last week's episode, which was tentatively titled Sorry Ellie, because we did <laughs> promise that Chelsea would send a mini, uh, mini so during the week. And uh, in fact, we just had to schedule it for our normal programming. But now we're back to normal. Chelsea, how are you? I'm good. It was also called Sorry Ellie because I threatened to Photoshop dreads on you, which I did. You did, so not much of a threat, more of an actual happening. It's an ask for forgiveness, not for permission situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. I get that. We have a very special episode of What Today because we have not not just three, our normal three. We have four people with us today. Three topics, but four people. Miles Luna is back to react for us. Hi, what's up? I've brought nothing but myself. Nice. (laughs) I'm the moocher of the episode. I like the idea of... um of rebranding what as Miles Reacts. I think it could be really good for SEO. (laughs) Oh, it would be great for SEO. Who's the fourth guest? Uh, Well, uh, do you want to maybe not host my podcast for me? (laughs) I'm already in trouble for just showing up with no food to contribute to dinner, so I'll just be quiet and sit in the corner Yeah, you hush. Uh, This week, I'm very excited. We have a good friend of ours. Mitch Donahue is on the podcast. What's up, Mitch? Uh, How's it going, everybody? Oh, so good. Literally, that has been Chelsea's reaction since I was like, hey, should we get Mitch on this? Her reaction has always been, Mitch, Mitch, Mitch. Okay, so this is real talk. I've been thinking about this because I was thinking about how to intro Mitch. And it's like, I think everybody has had that experience where someone else in the friend group Someone in the friend group wants to bring in like an outlier, like, oh, I'm going to bring like my friend from like another town. And like secretly you're always like, oh, God, is like friend from another town really just going to like fuck shit up? And like <laughs> the minute that like Miles brought Mitch in, I was like, oh, this guy fucking rips ass. Like, this guy rips ass. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. He's Miles Country Mac. Like, it's just like, oh, Country Mac came to play. Hey, I'm excited to pop my podcast cherry today. This is great. It's been a bucket list for me to be on a podcast, so. This podcast works that each person on it, but not Miles this time, brings a topic of something that they're interested in, something they've done a little deep dive research on, and it is a celebration of curiosity. We each bring each other our topics, and the idea is to wow each other with our new knowledge in a fun factual way but before we dive into that we're going to play a little game where we share the title of our topic and we each get to guess what we think it might be i am going to kick us off are you ready yes my title is the Secret Life of Dracula. It's about Robert Pattinson. <laughs> it's not about Robert Pattinson. Damn it. Why not? <laughs> Why not? My whole title is just Robert Pattinson and his works and his life. I, I hope it is. I mean, I want you to know that like so many uh, millennial households, we are, we are re-watching the Twilight Saga here. Oh, like, yeah? One at a time. And I'm like, I would have never guessed that this man would go on to like be our like indie darling to be in the fucking lighthouse (laughs) he's definitely following that daniel radcliffe train for sure what's that like water for elephants shit that he did oh that sucks well they can't all be winners i guess my favorite movie he did was that one when uh you find out at the end that he dies in 9-11 yes (laughs) (laughs) 
bitch. Holy shit. I saw that movie in France. To, not to brag, but to like 100% brag. Mm-hmm. But uh, we went and saw that movie. And then, yeah, it's Shyamalan twist. Is yeah. that like it pulls out. It does a wide pullout. Yeah, it's like 8.50 on September 11, 2001. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like on the 30th floor of the World Trade Center. <laughs> yeah, and then it hard cuts to like his sister's school and the teacher's like slowly writing September 11, 2001 on the blackboard. <laughs> and like, you're like, oh my God. And all the Parisians at this movie theater that I saw this at thought it was the funniest fucking thing. <laughs> that is unforgivable. Who? That's oh, so bad. That's so that, is bad. it Remember Me? Was that yeah. what that movie's Remember called? Me. Yeah. The rest of the movie is just like a very intimate, like a uh, family drama romance. But then yeah. they're like, oh, gotcha. Imagine <laughs> like she's all that. But then at the end, the prom is at the World Trade Center. <laughs> 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 like, tonal, like change. Secret Life of Dracula is not about Robert Pattinson. And I'm so sorry. Is it about... The serial killer Richard Chase, no, Empire of San Francisco, no, but that's very interesting. No, it's not about that at all. Future topic, maybe. Which is like, thank God that was the topic I brought. <laughs> is it my topic? Is it about the blood disorder that they think inspired vampirism mythology? Nope. You've stumped me. Consider yourself stumped, <laughs> Chelsea. What's your topic? My topic is. An onion a day. An onion a day. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. What does an onion a day do? Who's to say? Onion a day. Keeps the rona away? <laughs> keeps keeps away the wona. That's why you see toilet paper's missing, hand sanitizer's missing, and you can't get a fucking onion these no, days. You, you can't cannot. get one to save your life. You just can't get Literally. an onion. Is it about cooking? Is your topic about cooking? Kind of. The culinary arts? Ooh, it's a very much culinary alchemy. I was going to guess it was about Shrek. Yeah, it is. It's about when Shrek cooks. Real quick. And then we'll move on to Mitch's topic. But you can only choose one. Okay. What are you doing? I already know which one Miles is doing. You can release either the Farley cut of Shrek, the butthole cut of Cats, or the Snyder cut of Justice League. What you doing? Butthole cut. Butthole cut. I gotta go with that butthole cut. Butthole, it's got to be. That That movie is so wrong and should never have been made. (laughs) And the butthole cut is just like that extra leap into hell. It gives cats more replay value, as if it it already didn't have enough. And you know, I just think that's really. Plus, it's more realistic. And Tom Hooper's all about realism. That cats just love to put that little butthole in your face. It's true. It's true. I'd go Farley cut so brave you go farley cut uh i'd go snyder cut just to see if it would like make all of the justice league people finally chill out on twitter (laughs) (laughs) never nothing will ever do that butthole cut probably makes um cheese ball feel more like welcome in the house so well you can't see her butthole because her little back fluff is so fluffy well must be nice yeah it is kind of (laughs) uh mitch what's your topic uh my title is a whale of a tail that will blow you away. Oh! I'm so here for this. Okay, is it about thongs? Farting. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, Chelsea. That's it. <laughs> the only thing that's coming to mind is that amazing, like, BBC nature moment of the whale flipping through the sea. You know, remember that one? Where they get the whale in the slow motion and he's yeah. done a flip underwater? Yeah, yeah, babe. You yeah. mean, like, Free Willy? Yeah. No, not that Free Willy. That would have been a great topic. 
my my topic is a sick clip from a bbc documentary i'm gonna screen share check this shit out my my audio only topic it made me go what i thought it'd be great to bring you guys how am i doing podcast lit news listeners check out my favorite youtube video (laughs) but i feel like that's gotta be about big old sea life right am i off am i off paced you're not off pace okay is it about whales it it is about am i am i allowed to guess even though i'm just like a filthy like like a little little podcast gremlin yeah only only if you're not right right only if you're incorrect oh uh, so give it a go is it about thongs I guess it was on me that when Miles insisted that he guessed, it was because he had a guess. <laughs> I guess that, that was crazy of me to think because he had something to say. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more guess, but I need to look something up real quick. Okay, wow. Okay, so what I was looking up is are dolphins whales? And the answer is yes. Is it about those people who have sex with dolphins? It is not. Oh. like to kick us off i can go first <gasps> yes whoa such courage let's do it all right november 9th 1970 yes off the coast of florence oregon an eight ton 45 foot long sperm whale died and washed up on a beach okay okay so this has never happened there at least in the modern time there's reports going back to the 1800s of dead whales washing up on the beach but all the local authorities were just like what the fuck do we do with this whale no idea (laughs) so they uh were considering burying the whale but i don't know if you've been i've never been to the beach in oregon but i guess the beaches in oregon are very rocky and it's very difficult Mm. to dig and so Mm -hmm. the burying the whale was not an option well they just wanted to bury it like on the beach right there (laughs) Well, they couldn't move it. It was eight tons. Like, they they couldn't move it. There was, I guess, the way the tide situation was. Their plan was, we're going to bring in, we're going to bring in a dump truck full of sand and one of those tiny crosses and flowers that you see on the side of the highway where someone got into a tragic accident, and we're going to call it a day. The sand mountain's going to be the exact shape of a sperm whale. In a lot of instances when this happens, what a lot of, in other communities, what they've done is they've, you know, tied, like, a tugboat to it and pulled it out Mm. to sea. It drags down, decomposes on the bottom of the ocean, okay. goes on from there. Um, but they didn't do that. So first, they, <laughs> <laughs> so they That's consult great. the Navy on how to handle the creature. Now, Hello, I want to interject me, here. Navy. Yeah, wait, a, hold on. Can you whale. just call the Navy? <laughs> when there's a dead whale on a beach, I guess. This is the 70s. I don't know. They, they, <laughs> they, they contacted the Navy. Okay. They sent out some experts. Now, um, I wanted to kind of talk about for a minute, you know, just what types of uses there are for whale blubber. Sure. You know, <gasps> well, fun fact. Yeah, it's oh, well, that's a fact. They're then. used in the manufacture of leather, soap, no uh, oh. cosmetics. Obviously, they're used to power oil lamps. So there's a lot of uses. The fat, the fat of it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of uses for this. So this dead could, majestic creature. So you could say that like a big pile of money washed up on, <laughs> on I this guess so, yeah. Beach. Potentially. Now, it was already decomposing because it Close. had died and drifted ashore, so they wouldn't ah. be able to use all of it, but they could have used some Close. of it. So after consulting with the Navy, the Oregon Highway Patrol, in, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they should blow it up. <gasps> yes! No. Yes! How do you get rid of a whale? One chunk at a time? They enlisted 
uh, Highway Patrol member, 24-year-old George Thornton. No, they, 24 years old? <laughs> yes, hey, boy, they, they I need laid, you to blow up a whale. <laughs> they made him the project manager for this. Oh, um, no! How fucking yeah! A man with an associate's degree. <laughs> he has no explosives training. <laughs> but they like the so, cut of his gym. <laughs> so... You know, the Navy, though, is consulting them. The Navy was like, hey, you got to blow this whale up. Um, There's no way for them to tow it out. This is actually a very common practice with dead whales. Blowing them up? Yes. But this is the first instance of this happening on American soil. Mm. George decides that the logic is they're going to place a bunch of uh, cases of dynamite all around Mm. the underside of the whale. So it would blow it up. And then the seagulls and the crabs would come and take it away. Cool. <laughs> like the, the way the stork delivers a baby. Yeah. They'll just yeah. show up with their recyclable bags and carry yeah. it off. Like Snow White. I was imagining like a little uh, crab scuttling sideways, like with like a little like napkin tied around <laughs> yes. the neck. And a little Me too. Knife. Like a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like ready to shout out. Hello there, sir. Here to pick up the whale. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially what they're planning. So when you blow up a dead whale, there's two trains of thought. You either use a small enough amount of explosives to keep it contained, and it just dislodges itself when the tide comes in and pulls itself out, and then you can tow it out. That makes a lot of sense. Or you load it up with so much explosives (laughs) that it vaporizes it. Holy shit! Which one did our our boy want to do? Oh, this is the best part of the story. So George places 20 50-pound cases of dynamite all around the underside of the whale. Now, wait, you think that's a lot of dynamite. Is it not? Yeah, I'm going to introduce character number two to our story. Yes, we got a fucking ensemble cast here. Local businessman Walt Eumenhofer, who was in the area, he's actually, uh, he was an executive for Kingsford Charcoal. He was on a sales trip. He had just purchased a brand new Oldsmobile 88 Regency from a dealership that was running a a promotion. This is a straight up quote. Come get a whale of a deal on a new Oldsmobile. (laughs) Yes! Okay, okay. (laughs) He goes to the beach when they're placing this dynamite because he heard about this story. He's like, this is crazy. Walt is a former sergeant in World War II. And so he actually has extensive explosives knowledge. And he goes and he relays this information to young George Thornton. Hey, you either need a lot or a little but what you're putting there is right in the middle. (laughs) You're putting about literally just not enough. Does this man only speak in like riddles? (laughs) (laughs) He tells George this and George basically is just like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I got an associate (laughs) from Oregon, polytechnical. It's going to be fine. George is like, look, listen, I've watched Jaws, and the mayor from Jaws is my idol, and I want to grow up to be just like him, okay? With blind confidence and belief in only myself. I'm so glad you segued into Jaws, because I'm going to jump to this point. There was a a local woman, I I forgot her name, but uh, she was protesting the removal of the whale. They were going to blow it up on a Friday, and she wanted them to wait till Monday because she wanted to keep the beaches open so tourists could come and see the dead whale. (laughs) Walt's advice wasn't taken, so he, he quote, told uh, a local re- uh, a reporter from Portland who is also a young guy named Paul Lindman. Uh, he came to cover the event, uh, mainly because when he was a brand-new reporter at uh, KATU2, and 
when his boss was like, hey, we need you to go cover this dead whale on a beach. He's like, I don't want that story. And then they're like, well, they're going to blow it up. And he like got on a car and took off. (laughs) Immediately. Why didn't you lead with that? (laughs) Paul interviews Walt while he's leaving the beach. And he's like, uh, you know, where are you going? And he's like, oh, I'm going to get as far away as humanly possible. Oh, no. So Walt goes really far. Now a crowd's gathered. There's about three dozen people on this beach, maybe a quarter mile from the whale. And there's actually footage of this on YouTube. I can send it to you afterwards. It's amazing. They decide to detonate the whale. The explosion happens after a countdown by dozens of onlookers. (laughs) Um, In the footage, you see, well, we'll actually do a... Uh, Paul Lindman's own words, the reporter. Explosions in the movies usually look like a blast of fire and smoke. This one more resembled a mighty burst of tomato juice. (laughs) No! And the footage directly reflects that. It's incredible. (laughs) So the footage is amazing. So it's live on the beach and you can hear people counting it down. And then you hear like this old lady is like, you can take your hands out of your ears and then you start to see debris falling all around them and people almost die. So like giant pieces of whale are flying everywhere, um, including a piece of blubber as large as a car tire (gasps) that landed and completely crushed Walt Eubenhofer's brand new Oldsmobile 88. So this idiot goes like a mile down the beach to watch this explosion, but he leaves his fucking car in the parking lot. It's like 200 yards away. The best part is his is the only car that gets hit. It's like a completely (laughs) full parking lot and only his gets hit by the blubber. Only his whale of a deal. Oh yeah. Good God. Amazing. Amazing. Um, What's incredible though, is that the county ended up buying his car from him. And apparently he was very pleased with it. He actually, Walt owns a gun shop in Eugene, oh, Oregon no now, way. and has a whole bunch of memorabilia from the event, but he hates talking about it, apparently. <laughs> Weird flex. The explosion covered a mile and a half radius. <gasps> just uh, just whale detritus everywhere. Jesus. But oh. there was still multiple portions on the beach that weighed several tons. So it didn't even like get rid it of didn't... it, and they ended up having <laughs> Wait, to bury- you're telling me that old George didn't really, uh, his plan didn't go exactly to fruition there? It yep. did not. Uh, not only that, he was actually re-interviewed 20 years after the fact in 1991 by Paul Lindman again, the reporter. He went back to re-interview him about it. And uh, basically was like, so what went wrong? And George then refused to finish the interview because he believes nothing went wrong. Listen. He's like, oh, with my perfect whale explosion? Fucking nothing. Yeah. Fuck you, Paul. Yeah. What happened also is... You know, their whole plan was to have seagulls basically pick away the rest of it and the crabs. Well, when they blew it up, the explosion was so loud that seagulls didn't return to the beach for two oh, months. That's my incredible. God. What George succeeded in doing was not removing the beach of a whale, but keeping a beached whale and then sharing some of that beached whale with the rest of the community within a mile and a half of its course. But no, but not any of the sea life that he wanted to share with. In that way, he did succeed. Uh, There's actually several fan websites that are still constantly (gasps) updated about this. There's the explodingwhale.com, which 
covers it. You know, they just celebrated the 49th exploding whale day anniversary, (laughs) November 12th of 2019. Um, There's also the truth about the exploding whale on offbeatorganhistory.com. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, this is oh, this this feels like the what topic within a what topic. Like you've brought an amazing <laughs> what topic, but we need to go deeper. This has spawned a cult following, like it's the Rocky yeah. Horror Picture Show. What the fuck, Mitch? I'm completely obsessed with this explodingwhale.com. Like the very top says, yeah, you, did you <laughs> yeah, the very top has a quote from Paul that again I feel like you kind of buried that says, yes. the "Blast, blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds." <laughs> My favorite thing about this website is that it's just on the left-hand side. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's one of those old, like, GeoCities style. That is my story. Uh, It's one of my favorite... My favorite pieces of weird, strange American history that I found. Mitch, I loved it. I'm going to give you seven points just out of the gate. I really enjoyed. Wonderful. The particular image of just like the, of vaporizing a whale with dynamite was was pleasing to me. If you want the view, I will send you the video and you can watch it happen in real time. I would love that. That's one extra point (laughs) for the video. And then one extra point for the fact that that man's car got destroyed because that's incredible to me. I know. That was one of my favorite parts of the story. (laughs) I I love that this guy had so much expertise on how to blow up the whale um, and then still left his car in the lot. Yeah, and was like, this is going to be fine right here. I'm going to take off a point because I'm sad that the seagulls should have been feasting on that whale for a long time. Actually, I had a two-month hiatus, and that's sad for them. I'm going to give you eight points for being prepared, coming clutch. You had a narrative thorough line. There was an act structure (laughs) happening, an ensemble cast of characters thrown together in a sit. Thank you. I loved it. I'm going to give you an additional... Three points because this Whoa. website is only on the far left of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's so brave. So it's like half a source. So my topic was called The Secret Life of Dracula. Today I am talking about one of the most memorable actors of the late 20th century and early 21st century, to be fair. This man's career began in 1947 and it ended with his death in 2015. He had 259 film and TV appearances. Famously portrayed Dracula many times. He appeared as the ruthless Francisco Scaramanga in the Bond film, The Man of the Golden Gun. Fans of the Star Wars franchise might remember him as Sith Lord Count Dooku. And Tolkien lovers praise his portrayal of the evil wizard Saruman in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit trilogies. I'm talking about Christopher Lee. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, one of my favorite actors of all time. But did you know that he, previously to his whole acting career, he was a member of the SAS during the Second World War? Christopher Lee was a Nazi hunter. 
I'm sorry, what? Yes. Sir Christopher Lee was a Nazi hunter. Yes. So let me tell you the story of Sir Christopher Lee. He knew exactly how much dynamite would have been used to blow up. He would have known. For sure. Yeah. Let's call Chris. So Christopher Lee was born in 1922 in London, Belgravia to a one-time Chanel model and an army colonel. And he joined the Royal Air Force in 1940. But unfortunately... A medical examination uncovered that his optical nerve was damaged, and so he, it was concluded that he would never be able to fly a plane. He was he was crushed, but he got drafted into the Long Range Desert Group, the LRDG, which was a precursor to the SAS. Reportedly, he moved behind enemy lines, destroying Luftwaffe aircrafts and fields. And he was so prolific that he was drafted into uh, a super special secret intelligence part of the British Army. What? Yes. This is what he says in this interview in, in 2011. He says, I was attached to the SAS from time to time, but we are forbidden, former, present or future, to discuss any specific operations. Let's just say I was in the special forces and leave it at that. That is some, like, strong... Kiss, don't tell, mysterious gentleman energy. Right. Oh, he's he deaf killed oh, people. Aliens. Oh, he for yeah. sure did, and this is how we know because at one, <laughs> yeah, at, at one point during the filming of the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, the second installment of the acclaimed oh, trilogy. Oh, the good one. Yeah. How the, dare you? The, <laughs> the crew filmed the scene. You don't. You might remember this. The scene where Saruman, uh, spoiler alert, gets stabbed in the back by Wormtongue. Um, the scene actually didn't end up in the theatrical release. It's you can see it in the extended edition of the trilogy. But while he was filming it, uh, Jackson wanted Christopher Lee to scream after being stabbed in the back, and Lee refused because he told Peter Jackson he had witnessed many men getting stabbed in the back, and none of them ever screamed. Oh, <laughs> fucking shit! Metal fucking shit to get to say to somebody. I know on That's... a film set. So Peter Jackson probably shut the fuck up and shut let Christopher his... Lee do his thing. Peter Jackson uh, shit his pants and <laughs> continued the film. As an intelligence officer attached to the number two hundred sixty squadron RAF, Christopher Lee reportedly prevented a small mutiny after frustrated troops lacking news from the eastern front threatened to break ranks so this was the special secret service that he was attached to he was transferred to winston churchill's elite unit named the special operations executive the unit was nicknamed the ministry of ungentlemanly warfare are you fucking kidding me no this was that so that yeah the ministry of (laughs) ungentlemanly warfare it was the sequel that was never made to the league of extraordinary gentlemen (laughs) exactly It was infamous for conducting espionage and sabotage and organizing assassins of many officials of the Nazi-occupied countries of Europe. Uh, Details of their operations still remain classified to this day. But that was what uh, Christopher Lee was a part of way before he was ever, ever, ever an actor. He got drafted by that because he had incredible language skills and a favorable impression with senior officers and was involved in many reconnaissance missions occupying Europe tracking down suspected Nazi criminals. This is what he said in an interview. We were given dossiers of what they'd done and were told just to find them, interrogate them as much as we could and hand them over to the appropriate authority. Apparently he almost died twice during this mission and he himself personally was part of a group that uh, discovered one of the Na- Nazi camps firsthand. 
Whoa. Oh. Yeah. That's crazy. I am tickled at the idea that on his spy mission, he earned the nickname Spy. <laughs> you, know what? you know what, kid? We're going to call you Spy. <laughs> After the war ended, Christopher Lee was actually persuaded into going into acting by his cousin, Niccolo Carandini, who was the then Italian ambassador to Britain. So in 1946, several weeks after he decided to leave the RAF for good, Lee met his cousin for lunch and he told several long stories about his war wounds and the horrors that he witnessed and his cousin was so impressed by Lee's emotional performance, he urged him to try and find work as an actor. That... That reminds me of, like, one of the plot points from season one of Barry on HBO. (laughs) Chris Riley essentially came back traumatized from war, and his fucking cousin was like, use that. Yeah, but there's also, like, there's a couple of, like, very prolific, um, very prolific sort of British men of history that had these sort of secret double lives in the war. Mm. Roald Dahl was a spy in the war. Mm. Um, what was his nickname? I, I don't know what his nickname was, but I do know you writer. <laughs> I do know that he was potentially um, a, a huge inspiration behind both Christopher Lee and Roald Dahl's friend Ian Fleming's books. Mm. Ian Fleming oh. wrote uh, James Bond, wrote all the James mm-hmm. Bond books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roald Dahl basically cousins, like right? yes. So Christopher yeah. Lee and Ian Fleming are cousins. Ian Fleming and Roald Dahl were great friends and Roald Dahl's job during the war was basically to seduce women and to oh, get war no. like to get war secrets he literally like sexed his way to he, he was like a honeypot situation he was like James Bond kind of like that, that yeah, Roald Dahl that, fucks yeah so there's this he did he massively did he was also massively anti-semitic which is it was upsetting uh, but unfortunately unfortunately Ooh. but there's this idea that the james bond character is an amalgamation of christopher lee and roald dahl's roles during the second world war wow yeah this like very charismatic highly sexual british spy the three of them definitely knew each other and ran in the same circles to round this off here's some extra Pretty crazy facts about Christopher Lee. So Christopher Lee, may he rest. So his great-grandmother um, was an opera singer, a very, very famous Australian opera singer. At the age of 17, she married uh, Jerome Carandini, the 10th Marquis of Salzano, who's a political refugee from Italy. They became influential figures in the establishment of opera in Australia, and she has a street in Canberra suburb of Melbourne named after her. Uh, Christopher Lee, for some reason, was present at France's last public execution. When he was 17, he witnessed the guillotining of Eugène Weidman, the last person to be publicly executed in Paris. He wrote about it in his autobiography. And here's something that not many people know. Christopher Lee released a metal album. (gasps) What?! He released a symphonic metal album called Charlemagne. Can I just tell you, for listeners at home... Mitch is just sitting there smiling and nodding like a proud father. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Charlemagne by the Sword and the Cross. What? It won him a Spirit of Metal Award at the 2010 Metal Hammer Golden God Ceremony. uh, And he claims to be descended from Charlemagne himself. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Have you listened Uh, to it? I haven't. Have you? Yeah, it's pretty good. (laughs) It's not bad at all. (laughs) I'm not a big metal guy, but it's, it's not bad. 
at this point, Mitch, I wouldn't be surprised if you like pulled your like mask off. <laughs> I got a big Christopher Lee tattoo on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> it just says Nazi hunter, metal rock star, <laughs> pretend wizard. That is the secret life of Dracula and the story of Sir Christopher Lee. Damn. That was very cool. Isn't that pretty badass? It's super badass. You never think about, like, especially when, like, someone has been in such a um, fantastical series like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Like, the idea that he had this super brutal previous life, secret life that he can't talk about is kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it makes sense in terms of, like, uh male actors and especially male like european male actors from that generation like just so many european men of that generation were involved in the war like it was basically everyone that like it stands to reason that then pretty much anybody who would go into any field Mm -hmm. of which entertainment is one of them would have like a past related to the war yeah which is always wild i mean i'm i know ellie for you it's like a little bit different um we all saw you cry at uh, that (laughs) nolan movie but like Dunkirk, like, I did cry at that. Sometimes as an American, like I forget how in Europe and in other parts of the world, not just Europe, like uh, World War II was so like omnipresent culturally uh, for like all of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, Eleanor, um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to start you off with a 10. We're going to start at 10. <gasps> oh my God. Because Nazi hunting. And I think that's important. We do like I think that. that's important. <laughs> Minus two because our pets didn't appear anywhere in the story, True. despite what we promised. Did I promise that? Uh, yeah, I mean, just to say, we can't really roll it back right now, so okay. we'll just say yeah. <laughs> I will give you nine points yes. for the Nazi hunting as well. Yeah. I will give you one more point to make it an even ten, because you did cover really the only interesting fact I knew already about this. Really. <laughs> was, was it the metal album? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shall I bring us home? Yeah, but let me grab a beer and maybe pee. An onion a day. Oh, yeah. So I want to start this off with a little bit of a conversation because you know me, I love to. (laughs) Uh, Have you guys ever had, and Miles can answer this as well, an experience where you were able to kind of alter your perception of taste? Ooh. Has something ever like uh, surprised you with its flavor? Have you ever had that moment where you bite into something and it tastes totally different than the way that you thought it was going to? I once had a uh, tobacco ice cream in oh. Thailand and I thought Ooh. it would be gross and it was delicious. When I was in Washington state a few years ago, I used to hate IPAs. And then I had IPAs with hops that were like fresh picked from the day before. And it changed Ooh, like my whole concept of how beer worked because they're super floral and like you could taste like all the citrus and elements they put into the IPA. Yeah. It's very good. On a trip to Japan, I was fortunate enough to get to go to a Japanese barbecue place with a local uh, where we ordered a tiny piece of steak that was so beautifully fatty and marbled. And they insisted that I put a dollop of wasabi on it. And I was <laughs> like, I that sounds horrible. He's like, just trust me. And I ate it, and it tasted like butter. It tasted like there was a big old slab of butter on top of it, and I still, it freaks my bean to think of it. One time, I had this really bizarre experience, and I've tried to describe it to people, and a lot of people didn't believe me, and I was like, no, this really happened to me. And it was that I was at home, I was like a teenager, and we had apples at home, 
and I went to go reach for an apple and my parents used to like keep all of the sort of shelf stable produce mm. in like a basket because they were like mm, rustic <laughs> <laughs> it was like apples avocados and onions and potatoes and I grabbed an apple and I started to like daydream or like kind of zone out as I was going to eat it and thinking like oh man wouldn't it have been so funny if I had grabbed an onion like that would have been crazy and I was imagining that and then I bit into the apple and I tasted onion like I didn't like in my mind like I just like bit into my fruit and my mouth was filled with like the sharp pungent wow. painful sensation of onion to the point where I like I panicked and I dropped it thinking that I had actually grabbed an onion and then I looked and it was an apple with a bite out of it and I realized that like the power of my mind and like my sense memory had kind of overtaken my taste buds you freaked made, your taste buds out i freaked my bean my, <laughs> my bud beans and may as well taste onion that was a story that and an experience that made me really want to understand kind of the science of flavor and Ooh. why things and how much things how much of it is really our mouths and how much of it like so many things is our brain or our little meat computer <laughs> What is that movie that Patrick made us watch? What's it called? I'm sorry? The Matrix? No. Patrick made oh, us... Oh, oh, the VR one. Patrick made us watch this movie about a video game console that's like made of flesh oh. and it attaches to like a, your spinal Go cord. Please Google it immediately. I need to know. Because it, it came out the same year as The Matrix and one of the quotes on the DVD is... Existence. Existence. The quote on this DVD oh. box is makes The Matrix looks like child's play. Hey, folks, <laughs> it fucking doesn't. <laughs> And it's just this like horny '90s woman fingering this little like gelatinous. Yeah, yeah it's like, video. hey, have you have you guys seen the new Oculus, the new HTC Vive? Yeah, it's a, imagine a yeah. face hugger with a big fat clit that you just yeah. kind of massage and it takes you to the and to the VR zone. And it kind of zone. looks like the original Xbox controller that was <laughs> like Duke? an yeah. offense against God. <laughs> and she just like fing she just like twiddles its little nubbins and she's like, oh yes. Very upsetting. Carry Deeply on. upsetting yeah, film. Does sound edgier than The Matrix, if I'm being honest. Which is that's a feat. Sorry, Chelsea. Please well, carry on. I will. So <laughs> you know, naturally, the first thing that I was exploring is the science behind taste. Which, just to kind of is like a a little refresher. Human beings can taste about half a dozen or so basic tastes. They can differ culturally, which is a thing that we'll talk about Ooh. a little bit. But generally, when people talk about the tastes, we talk about sweet, sour, bitter, salty. Um, and then a couple that you don't hear as often, but you hear more and more is astringent. So that would be like things that taste soapy or mm. really vinegary. Um, like for some people, cilantro might be astringent. Mm -hmm. And then of course, everyone's favorite buzzword, umami. I was waiting for umami. <laughs> You waiting for umami. Umami, uh, actually, I heard in a, a novel by Stephanie Dandler about a restaurant. She described umami as the precipice of rot. Uh, oh. And I think about that all the time. The I know, it's very pretentious, but it's, it, it is the way that I would describe it. Yeah. Umami is like aged beef, Parmesan. Yeah. yeah. Oh, soy sauce. Kind of okay. Like Fishy, like that yeah. fish sauce taste. Fish yeah. sauce. Fish sauce is a, a little example. funky. Yeah, like a little very deep, very funky, very satisfying. Human beings developed taste as a sense 
in order to, like we always do, just survive. Because generally edible plants taste sweet, which I think that we can, if you really think about it, like that carries on today because like most fruits are sweet. And even I would say as compared to other things, uh, the taste of like raw, I don't know, broccoli or carrot or spinach, like those are relatively sweet. I would yeah. mean, We might not call them sweet in compared, comparison to candy, but they are sweeter than say rotten fish (laughs) (laughs) sure and then bitter things were harmful so like poisonous plants were generally bitter yeah another great example of this and also a great example of a cultural difference would be capsaicin which is what causes heat in food like spicy foods Mm -hmm. capsaicin was developed by plants to stop us from eating their fruit so basically we were like oh sweet good we eat fruit off tree and then some plants were like no eat fruit please don't yeah capsaicin no eat fruit and then all the other animals were like oh god no fire fruit fire no eat fruit (laughs) and then humans were like oh ow Ooh. Ooh, I like it when you hurt me. Ooh, mommy. Ooh, mommy. Ooh, mommy. <laughs> anyway, so then all human beings decided they liked that uh, painful, spicy thing, except for Ellie, who does not like it. I she can't. Doesn't. I do my best, you know? I just can't. I but do you feel like you can handle spice more now, having lived in the U.S. for like five years? No. Or Texas, at least. <laughs> no. Here's the thing. I am pretty good with Indian spice, but I cannot handle Mexican it's spice. It's not just that. It's also, it's Indian and bu- specifically buffalo wing sauce here. Oh, I do with. love some I buffalo wings. I don't wing. get it. I do not get it at all. But I can't be handling jalapenos. I can't handle habaneros. You can, you can scarf down some like buffalo cauliflower like it's no one's business. Oh. And if your girl can go like some crazy on a Rogan Josh. Yeah, but if I if I add in like one extra tablespoon of salsa so into upset. a dish, I've ruined dinner for you, yeah. and I need to. I got to go back to the jar. <laughs> I've made creamy soups that Ellie can't eat. <laughs> this is taken on a, a kind of a bullying tone. <laughs> no, you just have such a special palate. I have a British palate, and I love it, and that is who I is, and we. No, lo- that's really is though Ellie yeah. is that like where you grew up you weren't introduced to like capsaicin no in the form of like those kind of like uh peppers that grow close to the equator mm-hmm. so therefore and scientists do find that generally your palate is mostly locked in in like the first like few years of life wow. obviously there are some things no that way. you will grow to like but for the most part it becomes locked in and so in like a broad sense so like for you like heat is probably not something that you're going to learn to enjoy unless you really dedicate, like unless you treat it like a hobby and dedicated hours. <laughs> Which, you know, I not, I'm not gonna do. I know. A great example is like the flip, like, you know, my boyfriend Connor, native Austinite, which he loves to bring up. <laughs> uh, he, he grew up eating Tex-Mex and, oh, yeah. you know, Mexican food, and he loves to eat spicy food. He and I will eat so much like hot anything. But then when we go to a Lebanese restaurant or an Indian restaurant. Can't do it. And I, I always tell them I want it Desi hot. Like I want it as hot as it can be. Cause that's also like the food that I grew up with. Uh, he's like, he tells me that I've password protected my dinner. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, 
That's amazing. That's so good. I guess that is true because there is such a massive Indian food culture in England that like I always grew up with Indian food and so I can eat Indian spice whereas I can't eat Mexican spice. And it makes sense for me because like the handful of times I have tried Indian food doesn't go super good with me. Yeah. What also makes sense as to why you like buffalo wings because that's just equal parts Frank's Red Hot and butter. Which is like how you make butter chicken. Another great example that I love to cite is uh, I don't know if any of you have watched the show Ugly Delicious. Oh, on Netflix. Yes, oh, yeah. I love that series. It's a great show. It's an equal parts cooking show and kind of culinary exploration show. Mm-hmm. David Chang, uh, who's a chef, he owns like the Momofuku restaurant group. At one point, he did an episode in the first season that was about Chinese food. And he's really vulnerable in the episode because he talked about how, as the son of Korean immigrants, he grew up eating a lot of like, you know, quote, air quotes, pan-Asian food. Mm. It was a big part of his identity. And then he grew up cooking a lot of times in primarily Chinese kitchens. And so in his mind, as an adult man and also an adult professional chef, he's like, oh yeah, I know Chinese food. I love Chinese food. And then he came to find out during his research for his show that he didn't know shit about Chinese food. <laughs> Chinese food in America was created by Chinese immigrants to appeal to a Western palate. So it is full of sugar mm-hmm. and it's full of primarily like sweet salty and rich like umami flavors that is not what they eat in china because it's not what they grew up with he went to china to try some actual chinese dishes in china and he did it on the show and so primarily the flavors and textures that were celebrated in the chinese food that he was eating in china were bitter gristle so like the texture mm-hmm. of gristly, chewy, and slimy. Mm-hmm. We all have a hard time with that, right? Because those are things that are usually considered to be a prop, like problems. Gross. Like that's like if you don't, yeah, if you don't cook something correctly, you get those things. Right. Those are the things that are, are celebrated. And you saw the look on David Chang's face when he bit into something, and he was just like, "I I hate myself for saying this." He's like, "I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. it doesn't taste good to me." And they're like, "That's okay." They're like, "A lot of Westerners have a really hard time." Once you start to think in this way, in terms of a palate being something that you develop culturally and it's locked in, you start to see all around uh, the kind of gatekeeping of Western uh, Western ideals about food. Because for example, when you will watch like a cooking television show or you'll read a cookbook, they'll talk a lot about balancing flavors but it is always prized for a western palate Mm -hmm. so it's always like oh you should this is really balanced because this bitterness is overtaken by this sweetness or because you get rid of this sliminess and then you get this this depth of uh you know robust chewiness or whatever and so once you like it's you know it's like the matrix I think what's really interesting about all the stories that we just shared, we all touched on the fact that taste is only one of the senses that goes into flavor. Mm. So flavor scientists think about flavor as sort of an umbrella under which taste is only one part of it. Uh, I'm sure that you guys have noticed that smell is a huge, huge part. Right, right. I've I've known some people who who lack a sense of smell. Anosmia. That have a, yeah, that have a, a, a very different I, I guess perception of certain types of dishes a lack that we of perception yeah. yeah that's true yeah when i make dinner like if my allergies yeah. are really bad 
Um, yes. I always overspice everything, and it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> I can tell she's really nice, and she doesn't say anything, but I can tell. <laughs> the wildest thing that I found when I was doing this research is because I had heard that too. Like I, people, like I was reading these articles, and they were like, "Well, you know, smell like pushing their like glasses mm -hmm. up their nose smells a big part of it." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, then I found out. Oh no, no, no! Smell might be a bigger part of flavor than taste. Mm -hmm. Like Whoa. what you smell might be bigger than what you put in your mouth in terms of the things that you enjoy to taste. So here's some really wild shit that I found about this. The human nose is so sensitive that it can detect aromas present in quantities of a few parts of a trillion. Wow. And I know that's hard to conceptualize. So let me give an example. The dominant flavor of a bell pepper, which they've been able to isolate, it can be tasted in as low as 0 0.02 parts per billion, <gasps> which means that one drop of bell pepper flavor is enough to add flavor to five swimming pools and make five what? swimming pools of water taste like bell pepper. So the next time that one of you motherfuckers puts green bell pepper in my food and then says, well, you couldn't taste it, I took it out. They're lying. <laughs> That's so and crazy. Probably you could still taste it even if it wasn't in your batch because you were actually smelling it and then it would make your food taste like it. Whoa. It's more likely that you were smelling it than tasting it. So the advent of kind of modern flavor science, which is a real science, mm -hmm. came to us <laughs> as most things through McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a remember me level twist. Uh, <laughs> McDonald's forever like that you know people were like into mcdonald's what they're really into is mcdonald's fries and i think that we yeah. can all kind of mcdonald's fries are like the premiere the yeah they're the pinnacle the they used to be yeah, better the best okay well no they changed oh. up the oil and i bet that's what you're gonna talk about thank yeah. you for reacting yeah. miles don't out yourself as like a 50 year old man because this <laughs> thing that i'm talking about did happen in like the early 90s so i don't know that any of us really <laughs> but yes miles is right McDonald's fries became famous in like the 60s and 70s because they were cooked in beef fat. <gasps> they were fried in beef fat. Yum. So they were fat fries. Uh, everybody loved them. But then in the 90s, when people started like being a little bit more health conscious, they were like, hey, McDonald's fries actually have more cholesterol and saturated fat than their beef burgers. <gasps> no way. Yeah. And it was like gross. So... They decided to switch from beef fat to vegetable oil, plus natural flavors. No, and I know no, that we've had so many great eat. air quotes this episode. So do you guys know how they make uh, natural flavors? Is it a spell? Kind of. <laughs> it I looks, have no idea. I bet if you watched it happen, it would look much like a spell. Oh no, what is it? Okay, this is really weird. Uh, see, I always assumed, and this was me being very naive, that when something had like natural flavors, like for example, if they were like, oh, this has caramel flavor, it was because maybe they put some caramel in some water somewhere and then let it like have like essence of caramel and then like put that water <laughs> in shit. Uh -huh. This is what they do. They take whatever the thing is that they're trying to make the flavor of. So say you're trying to make the flavor of- Banana. Banana, okay. <laughs> they would take banana and they would set it on fire. What? Inside of, yes. They set it on fire inside of a machine called a gas chromatograph. And okay. this would actually take photos of the vapor and like smoke that was released by the banana when it was on fire. And it would filter that vapor through a spectrometer, which is basically like 
a very fancy chemical machine that filters all the different molecules in that vapor. So you have the banana, it's on fire, it releases banana steam. That steam goes through the spectrometer and the spectrometer says, these molecules weigh this much and they're this big and they're this concentrated. And then after that, scientists would just isolate whatever the um, chemical formula was for those molecules and then just recreate them artificially. It's When they say artificial flavor, it's completely artificial. It is just a chemical that mimics that same, that are, or is as close as possible to that same. Which is why bit of banana tastes, banana flavor tastes nothing like banana, but it is recognizable as banana. That is part of it. Also, I've also heard that the banana taste being different is because there used to be another like species of banana that existed mm. up until the 50s that doesn't exist anymore. Ah. They actually covered that but in season on. two of Ugly Delicious. Really? Yeah, Back it's, to David it's really interesting. When you see something that has that is strawberry flavored, so like if you buy strawberry syrup at the you know at the grocery store and it says natural flavors, mm -hmm. it will contain the following ingredients. Amyl acetate, amyl butyrate, amyl valerate, anthanol, anisyl, anisyl formate, benzyl acetate, benzyl isobutrate, butyric acid, cinnamyl isobutrate. So, and that's, that is maybe a fifth of the ingredients here and they're all like that. And it's because flavor science isn't just being like, that's caramel, let's put caramel in that. Flavor science is literally just a bunch of like, potions and that's potions. and that's cheaper oh. than just using fucking strawberries i think it's probably cheaper in the sense that you make this one solution like we talked about yeah. because it's about smell right you make this one solution and you only have to put remember 0 0.02 parts per billion wow. into it to make that to make five swimming pools taste like strawberries whereas if you wanted to make five swimming pools taste like strawberries with real strawberries you'd have to pay a farmer to make right. all those strawberries Wow. Yeah, it is This reminds me of when the last time I went to England, seeing Pop-Tarts for sale in just a local grocery store. And uh -huh. Pop-Tarts here in America says, like, made with real fruit. Just printed on every box. In England, in England the box is the same, but they were required to put a sticker on the box that was like, that's fucking horse shit. There's a, there's like a bright neon colored sticker that was like, actually, no. I'll leave you with this, and I want you guys to play along. And if you're at home listening, I want you to play along. Oh, let's play along at home. So when I found all this information about the different flavor sciences and how they create artificial flavors, this one name kept popping up, and his name is Dr. Granger, and he's considered the Coco Chanel of flavor science. <laughs> Fuck yeah. He builds you any complex flavor that you want. I'm pretty sure he is the one that built the artificial beef flavor that they now put in McDonald's fries to make them taste like beef so that they don't have to cook them in beef anymore. Okay. So this journalist who was interviewing Dr. Granger, she described this interaction with him. Granger brought out a dozen small glass bottles from the lab. After he opened each bottle, I dipped a fragrance testing filter into it a long white strip of paper designed to absorb aromas without producing any off notes. Before placing each strip of paper in front of my nose, I closed my eyes. Then I inhaled deeply and one food after another was conjured from the glass bottles. So now I want you guys to close your eyes and try to imagine smelling each of these things. Okay. I smelled fresh cherries, black olives, sauteed onions, mm. and shrimp. 
After closing my eyes, I suddenly smelled a grilled hamburger. The aroma was uncanny, almost miraculous, as if someone in the room were flipping burgers on a hot grill. But when I opened my eyes, I saw just a narrow strip of white paper and a flavorist with a grin. Oh my God. It's like, it's modern alchemy. Like they just combine all these flavors. They combine all these like chemicals that are each different flavors and they keep mixing and matching and they can basically trick your mind via your smell fear your sense of smell into believing that it tastes like almost anything. That's incredible. Cool. I mean, it gives you a lot of hope for like the artificial meat industry as a whole. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> what I've always wanted in my heart, if I'm being totally honest and very yeah. cynical, if I can get vulnerable with everybody for a second, <laughs> Please do. is I would love to get like three square meals a day that equal out to the exact caloric and vitamin intake that I need for my body, but they taste like whatever I want. Like the back to the future thing when they put the little disc in the and it comes out like a pizza and you're like, all right. You guys know um, this quaint little place called Taco Bell? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you? Yeah. I'm familiar. They have the Doritos Locos Taco, which is a taco shell sprayed, I assumed, with Doritos <laughs> chip flavoring. But did you know that for a brief period of time, Doritos produced a Doritos Locos Taco flavored Dorito? I remember this. Wait, it was that black bag with the midnight tacos? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so good. It was amazing. And it tasted exactly like a Taco Bell taco. It tasted exactly like a Taco Bell Doritos Locos Taco. That's flavor science, baby. And that's flavor science. Damn. Chelsea. Yes. Eight points off the bat. I loved that. I've never really thought about flavor science before and you took me into a whole new world and I'm excited about it and I'm excited to learn more. So thank you. Um, Minus one point just for because Miles brought up Taco Bell and it's not your fault, but that is what's going to happen. Sorry, Chelsea. I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) Chelsea, I'm going to start you off at a solid 10. Just because I love Ugly Delicious. David Chang's my dude. It's my favorite show. Um, I'm going to do a minus two points, though, because I didn't smell anything when you told me to put it. <laughs> yeah. We're supposed to imagine. This podcast wasn't in 4D. <laughs> oh, but, right. but honestly, fuck you. <laughs> oh, that's a callback. And that's a callback, Miles. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of What and Mitch's debut. Mitch, did you have a good time? Say yes. I had a blast. Thank you yes. so much. <laughs> please applaud. Please clap. <laughs> I had a great time. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Mitchapalooza32. Um, if you want any uh, like science fiction book recommendations or pictures of my dog. Hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Darcy, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Maney on Twitter and Ellie Main on Instagram. And you can find this podcast, most importantly, at WhatPod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can go to patreon.com forward slash WhatPod to support us and those two girls.club to check out our merch and uh, anything that we might be updating and putting on there. But thank you guys so much for listening. Hey, hey, uh, you're welcome. Anchor's merch coming soon. (laughs) That was my job. That was your job, Miles. I listened. I consumed it. And guys, I'm like comfortable full. That was delicious. That was a delicious podcast. Maybe you learned something. I do. Oh, beautiful. See you next time.